ahead and grab your Bibles or your phones or your scrolls or tablets, whatever you have, and open them up to the book of Philippians once again uh, this morning. The book of Philippians. We are continuing our sermon series here in the book of Philippians that we started two weeks ago. Uh, thank you to Nathaniel uh, for uh, preaching for us last Sunday as I was gone. Uh, it was great to hear God's word uh, online, uh, preached by Nathaniel uh, for me, uh, and I, I'm sure you enjoyed that as well as he opened up Philippians 1, uh, verses 6 through 8. Uh, so far in this book, we've seen the author, who is Paul, overflow in thanksgiving and affection for this church that's located in Philippi, a church that he planted some 10 years prior to writing this letter. For Paul, this church was an ever-present reminder of the amazing work of God to take the unlikely and to make it a reality. To take a businesswoman, a slave girl, a jailer, and to build a church where the gospel is adored and is advancing throughout this consumerist wonderland called Philippi. And God does that kind of thing, even as we just saw in the video of Redeemer. He still does that. He still takes the unlikely and makes it a reality. Uh, we are seeing that even here uh, in some prairie. And so, as we see Paul overflow in thanksgiving and affection, it's no wonder that these first 11 verses that we're reading are so saturated and marked with joy. Uh, he has found joy in Christ, and that's overflowed into joy in this church. Paul is overwhelmed with the goodness and mercy of God present and plentiful in his handiwork, his church. And so this morning we're coming to verses 9 through 11, and we find Paul closing out the greeting of this letter by explaining the content and aim of his prayers for this church. And so we read here in verse 9, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, two weeks ago, we observed in verses 1 through 5 that one of the ways a posture of joyful thanksgiving is expressed is through prayer. In verse 4, we read, Always in every prayer of, prayer of mine, for you all, making my prayer with joy. And as Paul does so many times throughout his letters to the various churches, he then goes on to describe what it is that he's actually praying for the church, which not only helps us today get a better understanding of the churches and their specific needs and struggles, but more importantly, when he describes what he prays, the content and aim, it informs and instructs the manner and even the matter in which we should pray. And so what Paul gives us here in these verses is not just what Philippi needs, it's what you and I need. And so before we go further into this prayer, let's ask God to speak to us through this prayer from Paul and ask him to shape our prayers through it as well. Father, this morning we are grateful for the opportunity to open up your word. And we have the freedom to do that, to gather together uh, in this place, in a community building, and sit here and study your word. 
And we know that as we open your word, that you still speak through it. That you will discern the thoughts and intents of our heart through your word. Uh, You will show us and shape us through your word. And so, God, I just pray that you would help each and every one of us to be leaning forward and listening intently to your word. Not to anything that I would say, but to your voice speaking through your word for your glory and for our joy in you. In your name, amen. Now, I don't know about you, but I love hearing little children pray. Anybody else love hearing little children pray? There's something about the innocence and the authenticity in which they pray that is both adorable and even sometimes challenging. I mean, just listen to some of these prayers. Dear God, I went to this wedding and they were kissing right there in church. Is that okay? God, thank you for the baby brother, but what I prayed for was a puppy. Here's another one. Dear God, it must be super hard to love all the people in the world, especially my brother. I don't know how you do it. God, I want to be just like my daddy when I grew up, but without so much hair all over. Dear God, I don't think anybody could be a better God. Well, I just want you to know that. I'm not just saying that because you are God already. These prayers from children are adorable and even challenging. I remember a couple years ago, one of our children praying at a mealtime and asking God to bless everyone except, and then named their, their sibling. And I probably was Haddon. I couldn't remember who it was exactly. Uh, kids are so honest and real when they pray, aren't they? Sometimes a little too real. But unfortunately, as we get older... We quickly lose our authenticity, our openness with God. I mean, just think about your prayers this past week. If they weren't just the rote prayers you pray before a meal or before bedtime with your kids, I'd venture to say that one of the missing elements of your prayers was just being real with God. We tend to drift away from innocence in our prayers and we get, when we gain more maturity. For some reason, we think we have to say just the right things to God in our prayers. And so our prayers then end up being merely a list of requests that usually tend to be focused more on being released from our daily inconveniences rather than prayers focused on the God who actually controls our day. And then if we think about what we pray for others about, that is, if we even pray for others, If we're honest, our prayers usually focus on those same things. God, would you be with Doris today? And and whatever it is, we're filling in the blank with some physical ailment, social struggle that our brother or sister is currently having. Now, don't get me wrong. We should be praying for those, for the physical ailments, struggles, with coworkers, children. But is that really all that our prayers should be about? Well, here... In verses 9 through 11, I believe Paul answers that question with a resounding no. In fact, if you've been tracking with Paul so far in this letter, he's made it clear that if we are truly thankful for and have a sincere affection for one another, as he's modeled for us in the first eight verses, then our prayers ought to be more focused on deeper gospel realities than simply on our brothers or sisters being released from inconveniences. And so what Paul shows us here 
in these verses is that prayer, rooted in joyful thanksgiving and affection, focuses on the gospel growth of others. Prayer, when it's rooted in joyful thanksgiving and affection, it focuses on the gospel growth of others. Paul shows us that there is something far deeper going on in the lives of those who we fellowship with. And true affection manifests itself through authentic, joyful prayer for the gospel growth of others. Prayer that focuses on them bearing gospel fruit, that they would experience a growing, a genuine, a glorifying love. And so notice first with me here in verse 9, that Paul prays that the Philippians will have a growing love. Look at verse 9 again. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Paul's heart for this church is again being poured out here. And we see that his primary concern for them is that they would abound in love. Once again, notice here that even though this church in Philippi seems to be relatively healthy, as you survey this book, we don't see a lot of problems, especially not the problems that they had in Galatia and Corinth. But Paul is still pleading here with God that this church would grow. He's not simply content with the outward signs of health present in Philippi. And so he asked God for a deep and abounding love among the church, a love that is not static. For you see, what Paul knows to be the case is that when a church becomes stationary with a cert- and content with a certain status quo of existence, they're already declining. A stationary church is not a healthy church at all. In fact, it's the exact opposite. And Paul does not want the Philippian believers to be satisfied with mediocrity, writes D.A. Carson. He cannot be satisfied in a fallen world with the status quo. He wants these believers to move on, to become more and more loving. And so he starts off explaining that his prayer is that they would grow, that there would be movement in this church towards more love. My next door neighbor, a man named Roy, spends, he's retired, and he probably spends about eight hours or so a day tending to his garden. Anybody else want to do that or spend that amount of time? Doug says, that's me now. He carefully waters the garden. He pulls all the weeds that sprout overnight. And just this past week, when we came home on Wednesday from North Carolina, we noticed that he put up a new fence around his garden so the rabbits or chipmunks or perhaps a pesky neighbor kid like Haddon would want to come running through the garden, snacking on the vegetables he's growing. I mean, he is very intent in, gro- in the growth of his garden. Now, I... Let's just say, for sake of illustration, that tomorrow morning Roy wakes up, and I notice that he's out there in his garden pulling up everything he's planted. He starts washing everything off, carefully placing them in the buckets and bags so that they can take it inside and eat and enjoy. That would be, if you're a gardener, absolutely absurd, wouldn't it? I mean, I'm not a gardener at all, never had a green thumb except for when finger painting with my kids, but I do know that now is not 
the time for Roy to harvest his garden. I mean, I've seen the small greenish, whitish, like strawberries he's growing, and I know they're not at all ready to eat, uh, even if we were to coat them with tons of sugar. They're not ready to eat. Roy knows that more growth needs to take place before he harvests his garden. His garden is not ready right now. It will one day, but not now. And see, this is exactly what Paul is saying here. More growth needs to take place. The day of Christ is coming, he says later on. And on that day, he prays, as we see in verse 11, that they will be filled with the fruit of righteousness. But for now, growth needs to happen. And so he prays that until that day, their love would grow more and more. Now, what is the object of this love? In these verses, we don't see a specific object stated here, but I think it's safe to assume from what we've read so far in this letter that he has a love for other believers in mind, those with whom we are in partnership or koinonia, fellowship with. So Paul is praying that this church would evidence the grace of God and how they love each other and that they would do so more and more that it would continue to grow with knowledge, he then says, and all discernment. These two words are important for us to note. On one side, Paul is praying that the Philippians will grow in their knowledge of God and knowing who he is and his will for them. And then on the other side, that they would grow in applying that knowledge. Paul's desire is that their love would abound as they grow in their knowledge of God and one another. For as 1 John 4 reminds us, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and, what? Knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And this is love, and this is the love of God that was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, John says, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. You see, what Paul says here and what John says there in 1 John 4 is to know God is to know love. And to know, know his love in Christ is to be spurred on to love others. And so Paul's prayer here is that they would grow in their knowledge of God. And as they grow in their knowledge of God, they would grow in their love for one another in turn. The source of this love, as we see in 1 John 4, is Christ, just as it is here in Philippians 1. For if you look down at verse 11, it says, through, or that comes through Jesus Christ. All the fruits listed within these verses, love, knowledge, discernment, purity, blamelessness, all have the same root, Christ. Christ provides the example. He provides the power for love. The more you dwell on Christ, love for you, the more you abide in him, John says in John 15, the more loving you become. And so apart from a knowledge of God and his word and his love, we cannot love as we ought. In fact, wasn't that what we saw in our study in Hosea? Remember in Hosea 4, it says, For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness 
or steadfast love, no knowledge of God in the land, so my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Knowing God in his ways leads us to love like God. Paul explains it in Ephesians 5 by saying, Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us. But notice the next phrase here in verse 9. I mean, just in case we're tempted to leave knowledge in the textbooks or hidden in the recesses of our mind, Paul adds, and all discernment. The word discernment occurs only here in the New Testament. But by using it coupled with knowledge, he's linking knowing the truth with applying the truth. Tony Marita points out, knowledge asks the question, what is right? But discernment asks the question, what is best? In other words, what Paul is praying for here is not just a head knowledge infused love. I mean, just simply saying the words or knowing that we should love another person. I love my brothers and sisters in Christ because that's what the word says. No, Paul says you are to have a heart knowledge that permeates your love. A love that isn't static or stationary. It's active and moving. It's taking the knowledge of God and his love for us and applying it into the relationships with others. Specifically with those we have partnership with, we have fellowship with. It's knowing God's love, but then knowing each other specifically. Knowing each other's needs. Knowing where our brother or sister in Christ needs to grow in their love. For instance, if I were to say to you, as husbands, you are to love your wives... All God's, all God's women said amen, right? Love your wives. Now, if I were to say, you need to love your wife by doing this. This afternoon, go get a dozen roses uh, and a bunch of chocolate. That's how you love your wives. Some of the wives in this building are saying, yeah, that would actually show me uh, he, he loves, loves me. Some of you, though, here might be either allergic to those flowers uh, or allergic to the chocolate uh, or on a special diet. You don't want the chocolate. But if I said love like this, and that's the only way to love, then for some of you, you would say, no, that's not all that loving. For us as husbands, we love our wives differently. We take that truth of love and we apply it differently to our, our wives. The other day, Megan said, you don't need to buy me flowers anymore, at least the roses. I was like, sweet, this is great. Uh, I can find weeds on the side of the road. I can go into Roy's garden and grab some weeds, and she'll be happy with it. For me, in loving Megan, I need to know her. I need to know what it would be like for me to love her. For you, it looks different for you to love your wife. It's not the same exact thing. So Paul is saying that here as it relates to our partnership and fellowship with one another. When we love our brothers or sisters in Christ, it might look differently for each brother or sister in Christ. I love how Pastor Steve Lawson explains this kind of love. He writes, This kind of love requires penetrating discernment into the real needs of people as they find themselves in real-life situations. It means having a heart understanding of people's lives that perceives their deepest needs and how we can best meet those needs. It's not just saying, this is the way I love people. And it's the only way I love people. It's knowing the real life situations, with penetrating discernment, knowing 
how they need to be loved. And praying that that love would abound more and more in their lives. That they would see gospel growth, whether that's in their pride or arrogance, whether that's in their struggle with lust, whether that's in their uh, struggle with impatience with their children. It's knowing our brothers and sisters enough to pray for gospel growth in specific areas. And so we have to ask ourselves, is this the love we are growing in for our brothers and sisters in Christ? Is this the kind of love we pray for and desire to abound in our fellowship? Well, not only does Paul pray for a growing love, he also prays that they would experience a genuine love. Look at verses 10 through 11. So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. The other day, we as a family were in Culver's. That's a surprise to many of you, I know. <laughs> Us in Culver's, really? The manager there at Culver's was called over to inspect a $100 bill. Not, not by me. I don't carry that kind of cash. I carry the 500s. And so, as he came over, he held up the bill to the light uh, to check to see if it was real, to see if it was authentic. And supposedly, I've heard from people who carry around that kind of pocket change, that you can hold the bill up uh, and you can see if it's, it's counterfeit or if it's authentic by a couple things. One, there's a faint image of Benjamin Franklin in the blank space to the right of the portrait. And you should also be able to see the numeral 100 in the lower right corner, my right, this is your right, corner of the front of the bill if you shift it a little bit. And it turns from copper to green. I don't know if you knew that, but that's what they say. He was up there looking in the light, trying to see if it was counterfeit or real. What Paul is praying for here in verse 10 is that their love would not at all be counterfeit, but real and authentic. That there would be a genuineness in their love, and it would be clearly visible in the purity and blamelessness on the day when Christ returns. And so this phrase, approve what is excellent in the original language, was used to describe a method used in testing metals and coins to determine whether there was they met a specific standard. Paul uses this phrase then to explain the content and aim of his prayers for the Philippians. And he does so to make it clear that shallow, surface-level love for one another, that sadly is far too often characteristic of love that many experience within the church, is not at all what he has in mind. Rather, his prayer is that the Philippians would so experience the deep reality of their union with Christ, which he'll go on to explain throughout this book, and in Christ with one another, that their love for one another would be, in the end, real. It would be authentic. It would be pure. That is, sincere, uncontaminated. It would be blameless. It would be holy and above reproach. That we would, in fact, treat one another like brothers and sisters. Later in this letter, he will reiterate what he's praying for them when he writes in chapter 4 and verse 8. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, just, pure, whatever is lovely, commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So the bottom line is this. Paul's desire for this church in Philippi, and 
I believe God's desire for every church is a life of authentic integrity marked by the pursuit of holiness. That we as believers, together with our brothers and sisters, we would be known by authentic love and pursuit of holiness together. Even as we saw last week in verse 6, it is this good work that Christ has not only begun in us, but it's this good work that he will bring to completion on the final day. And so this is why Paul and you and I can pray this with confidence for one another. We can pray that our brothers and sisters would approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless. We know that this is Christ's work. He's at this work. He's doing this. And Paul reiterates this once again at the beginning of verse 11. He says, filled with the fruit of righteousness. Where does that come from? Through Jesus Christ. This prayer is not that our brothers and sisters will white-knuckle their way to purity and holiness. It's not a prayer that our brothers and sisters will pull themselves up by their own bootstraps to a love that's growing and genuine. No, this is a confident, hope-filled plea of desperate dependence on the one who alone can produce the fruit of righteousness. So let me ask you this. Are you praying this for... And are you pushing your brothers and sisters in Christ toward this kind of genuine love? Do these words here in verses 9 and 10 and 11 mark your prayers for one another? Let's not just be partners in the gospel who pray shallow, surface-level prayers for one another. No, let us be a church that are lovingly intrusive enough to know how to pray specifically for our brothers and sisters, praying that they are filled with the fruits of righteousness. Well, the final element that Paul gives us here is in verse 11, the end. This is his aim for the prayer, that they would have a glorifying love, filled with the fruits of righteousness that come through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. As Paul is closing out this section of this letter, this initial greeting, he is expressing his highest desire for the Philippian church, that their love for one another would glorify another. That their love would point not back to themselves, but it would point to the author of love. And now that Paul highlights this here at the end of verse 11 is it's not really that much of a surprise, especially if you've read Paul before. Paul uses these words time and time again throughout his letters to the churches. Remember in Corinthians, he writes, Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. To the church in Ephesus, he writes, So that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Now, Paul, throughout his writings, is crystal clear that in this one thing, that the end of all things in the Christian life, is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And prayer is no different. Paul does not have, or prayer does not have as its end, the swaying of God's will. Prayer is not about swaying God's will to bring about our will. Rather, the end goal, Paul tells us, as, and even as Christ himself instructs us, is God's glory. Remember what Christ says in Matthew 6? Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, 
Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The glory of God is at stake in our prayers. Not simply whether or not our requests are answered as we would desire them to be. The goal of prayer is the glory of God. Which is why, again, this prayer from Paul's lips is so gospel-centered. I mean, look again at the content and aim of this prayer. That their love would grow more and more. For the love of Christ constrains or controls us. Because we conclude this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no, long, might no longer live for themselves, but for him. He says in 2 Corinthians 5. He prays that their love would be genuine. He's prayed this elsewhere. In Romans chapter 12, to have a sincere love. Peter writes in 1 in, in Peter 1.18, Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. As we continue on, it says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere, a genuine, authentic, brotherly love. You see, all of these prayers... Elements of the prayer that Paul gives us here are centered in and soaked in the gospel. He prays that their love would glorify God in all things. For this reason, he says, I bow my knees in Ephesians chapter 3 before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with the power through his spirit, grounded in love, and know the love of Christ. These here are gospel prayers, writes D.A. Carson. That is, they are prayers offered to advance the work of the gospel in the lives of the Philippians. And by asking for gospel fruit, for gospel growth in their lives, the ultimate purpose of these petitions is to bring glory to the God who redeemed them. This prayer then by Paul provides us a, a helpful and concise checklist that can and should direct our prayers. What he prayed for these believers really should guide our prayers for one another. And so, as we close this morning, the question we're left to answer is this. Are our prayers for one another gospel-centered like Paul's? And when was the last time you prayed for one of your brothers and sisters in Christ that their love would abound more and more in knowledge and discernment? That they would be pure and blameless? Are you praying for gospel growth in the lives of those you have covenanted together with here within Christ Fellowship Church? You've partnered with sharing a vision of the gospel going forward in this city. For love to grow within our body. And that by our love for one another, they would know we are his disciples. That our love would be genuine. That is, they would be real and tangible. Are you praying that for yourself and for others? And that by our love, our God would be glorified above all things. And Paul tells us here, prayer rooted in joyful thanksgiving and an affection for one another focuses on the gospel growth of others. Is that our prayer for one another? May it be said that we are a people who pray not just for the daily inconveniences, for the deep realities of the gospel taking root in the lives of our brothers and sisters. So Father, 
And to that end, we're praying this morning that you would do that through your word that we have just heard. That you would create within us a desire, a hunger, a longing for the words that come from our mouth in desperate dependence to you. Please cries for you to break into lives here on earth of our brothers and sisters, that it would not just be for physical ailments, inconveniences, but for deep gospel growth. So God, even right now I'm praying that for my brothers and sisters that are sitting here this morning, that you would grow love in these people. That it would abound more and more and that it would not just be a head knowledge love but God that you would help them to know each other enough to know how that love can be displayed and manifested. And that it would be genuine. It would be pure. It would not just be a show but it would be genuine and sincere for one another. And then as that happens fruits of righteousness will overflow in our baskets of harvest. And that you would be glorified you would be praised among all things that as people hear the words christ fellowship church that they would say that church loves one another with a sincere love it grows and god is to be glorified because of that and so god i ask that you would do that work in us as a church corporately and as a church individually as your temples of the spirit God, do that for our joy in you and your glory.